jump right into charity or almsgiving or giving to the poor or generosity. And um, just to, to help a little bit, you know, in case you do want to go back and study the Sermon on the Mount later, you can divide, um, one, one major division is between 5 and 6, between chapter 5 and 6. And chapter 5, um, if I can put it this way, is more about horizontal uh, righteousness, uh, the way that we deal with other human beings. And then chapter 6 is more vertical. And um, I guess the word for that would be more about piety, although that's not a word that's always positive. I think um, technically that's just an expression that means kind of your devotional life with God. And so um, in Matthew 6, 1 through 18, he's covering these three forms of ancient piety uh, that were very well known in that time. And still today, you've got, um, on the one hand, he starts with charity uh, or almsgiving, and then he goes to prayer, which we'll look at tomorrow. And then he talks about fasting, which we won't look at. But those three um, forms of piety, those are uh, essential parts of all monotheistic religions, those three forms of piety. So that would have been true in ancient Judaism, modern Judaism, and Islam as well. Uh, I don't know if any of you know the, the pillars of Islam, but um, three of them are charity, prayer, and fasting. And then they have the creed as well and the hajj. So of the five pillars, those are three of them, these three things that Jesus looks at um, in Matthew 6, 1 through 18. And um, Jesus takes these things and he deepens them. So as I keep saying, you've heard it said, but I say, let me tell you um, more deeply what is meant by these three things. And so he, he, in these cases, he, he deepens it in the sense of saying, there's a hypocritical way to be generous, and I'm going to tell you the authentic way to be generous. That is not surface... Uh, It's not to impress other people. It is authentically about your relationship with the Father. And uh, I want to just read a quote here by um, a writer that I don't always recommend, Brian McLaren. He has a lot of good stuff. Uh, It's kind of like Rob Bell. He's kind of similar in a way where you discount, you know, maybe 10%, but I would say 90% is very good, and he's a good writer. And so he calls these three forms of piety a revolutionary countercultural movement, um, which sounds familiar, right, to what we've been talking about. This is what he says. I'm going to quote a pretty decently long quote here. Uh, They proclaim, that is, these three forms of piety, a ceaseless rebellion against the tyrannical trinity of money, sex, and power. The kingdom citizens resist the occupation of the invisible Caesar through three categories of spiritual practice. They practice a liberating generosity towards the poor to dethrone greed and topple the regime of money. Second, they practice a kind of prayer that is a defiant act of resistance against prideful pursuit of power, pursuing forgiveness and reconciliation, not retaliation and revenge. And finally, they practice a fasting to revolt against the dominating impulses of physical gratification so that the sex drive and other physical appetites will not become our slave drivers. So um, that's exactly what kind of I've been talking about all along is that these things which we seem um, to think sometimes are just normal uh, because we live in, uh, you know, in Christendom, if you will, even if it's crumbling, uh, these are very revolutionary things. They're, they're very countercultural things. And um, they have a powerful resistance to the empire. So uh, let me read the scripture. And uh, again, Matthew 6, and I'm just going to go through verse 4. This is the word of God. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So, Father, we again ask, uh, we plead that your spirit would come. Uh, We are all needy um, sinners. Um, All of us, uh, believer and non-believer, are in need of the same um, enlightenment, the the same Christ, the same Holy Spirit right now. And um, we can't really give grace if we don't receive grace, if we don't realize how needy we are. And especially in this area, I just confess my own need to be more generous and how resistant I am to... uh, to helping the poor, and I know that's true of others, and so I pray you'd help us, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. So one thing I want to say is that um, in the Torah, in the Old Testament, you may not realize it, but, but charity and helping the poor is a huge part of the law, and if it's not a part of the, uh, the law, um, it, I would encourage you to go back and, and read a, a lot of the, I mean, it's hard to read the whole thing, you know, the first five books of the Bible, but I'm going to give you some, some verses here. You might want to write them down. I'm, I'm reading here from a book called When Helping Hurts. And uh, if, if you haven't read that, if you want to know about how to get involved with helping uh, the poor, uh, Brian Fickert is the author, and it is the best book I've read by far. And it, it protects you from the danger of hurting the poor when you're working with them, when you're trying to help them, which is, which is very possible. But uh, he begins the book by talking about how important... Uh, Loving the poor is to God in the Old Testament. So, again, another quote. Um, God gave Moses numerous commands instructing Israel to care for the poor. The Sabbath day guaranteed a day of rest for slaves and aliens. I don't know if you've ever thought about the Sabbath that way, but that was a way of showing mercy to the worker. Uh, Exodus 23, 10 through 12. The Sabbath year canceled debts For Israelites, allowing the poor to glean from the fields and setting slaves free, as well as equipping the slaves to be productive. That's Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 18. Read about that, the Sabbath year in Deuteronomy 15. It was mostly for the sake of helping the poor in Israel. And then the Jubilee year, uh, that's every 50 years, emphasizing liberty. It released slaves and returned land to its original owners, Leviticus 25, 8 through 55. Beautiful chapter of the Old Testament, um, Leviticus 25, the Jubilee year. There were other laws about debt and tithing and gleaning that ensured that the poor would be cared for every day of the year, Leviticus 25, 35 through 38, uh, Deuteronomy 14, 28 through 29, Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. These commands were so extensive that they were designed to achieve the ultimate goal of eradicating poverty among God's people. Quote, there shall be no poor among you, Deuteronomy 15.4. So I don't know if you realize how much the Old Testament is radical in terms of its day and age. In the Egyptian and the Babylonian and the Assyrian cultures, there's no way they would have had these kind of laws. I mean, to some extent care for the poor, but the extent to which God's kingdom was supposed to do that was radical. And in the New Testament, you see the same exact pattern. Just uh, one verse, James 1.27 Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James is saying right at the heart of religion um, is the, the desire to give to those in need. 
And there's a great case study in this in this man named Cornelius. Cornelius is tricky because Cornelius was not a Christian. He was a God-fearing pagan. And um, listen to the centrality of charity in the, in the piety of this man. He was a Roman military commander that Peter met shortly after Christianity got started. He's in the book of Acts. So in Acts 10, chapter 1, it says this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what is known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, and then he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Now, this is not righteousness by works. I'm not saying you can earn God's favor, but, but there was something about Cornelius' heart that was clearly being moved by the Holy Spirit because his almsgiving, his generosity, was at the heart of his relationship with God. And so God says to Cornelius, verse 4, chapter 10, verse 4 in Acts again, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. His alms ascend like a, a sweet-smelling offering to God. And then in verse 31, Peter says to him, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. So I'm just trying to highlight there how central charity is in the whole scope of the Bible. Okay, so that's even, that's even before Jesus starts talking about what he's talking about. He's talking about two different kinds of charity. He's saying not only should you be generous... But I want you to be generous for the right reason, not to impress other people, and not to impress yourself, but only because uh, of the Father, because you love the Father, and you want to please the Father. And so, uh, again, it's a contrast between this hypocritical charity of the religious leaders of his day, and then the authentic charity. I want to look at those two things. And of course, before I go on, if you're not practicing charity, you're not even really in the ballgame here, so the... Some ways you need to go back to the first thing I said and just say, how can I, how can I help with the poor to begin with? And, um, you know, Christians are known to give away less than 5%. Uh, these are evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians in America give away less than 5% of their income, and only about 9% actually tithe. That means give 10% or more away. So it's a very hard thing for Americans. Again, the empire... Uh, really put shackles on us. So I know also you're in college, and so you're not really making money. You're probably paying money right now, and so that makes it hard as well. So, you know, just a few things you might think about. You know, just taking uh, bottled water or something like that to some of these people on the corners. I know that in all the places you go to school, there are people in need on street corners. I've bought McDonald's uh, gift certificates to give to them. Um, which is not healthy, you know, if you've seen Super Size Me, I realize that's, that's not necessarily good, but cooking healthy meals um, and taking the people who are not eating well. In our church, there are a lot of young moms, so we take meals to them. Um, you know, I think even mentoring an at-risk teenager in your community is a way of showing charity, not necessarily financially exactly, but you're taking a gift you've been given, your mind, your education, um, or even just staying committed to a church that does these things. That, that in itself is an indirect way of doing what I'm talking about. So um, if you're doing those things, then you need to hear what Jesus says to you, which is that your desire to help the poor can be coming out of your desire to please other people or even to impress yourself. And that's where it's dangerous. And he gets into that. Verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And uh, he says in verse 2, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites. And that's a key word 
in this section, the word hypocrite. Um, the number one rule of American spirituality is what? It's don't be a hypocrite. Uh, the, the hypocrites are the problem with uh, religion in America today. There was a fixed point foundation that did a nationwide survey of all, uh, of all colleges, and they, um, they went to these secular um, versions of, you know, RUF or IV or Campus Crusade. They went to the Secular Student Alliance and the Free Thought Society, um, which they may have at your schools. I don't know if they do, but there are skeptics that gather together to do these kind of things like we're doing right now, but they would have a speaker talking about their unbelief. And um, that what they found out in these surveys that was interesting, that most of those people in those societies had gone to church and had even been involved in youth groups. And then number two, they had encountered hypocrisy. And that's why they said they had left the church. So this is very relevant. And hypocrisy can creep right into the heart of, of uh, the good parts of our faith, which is generosity. And I don't know, um, you know, if, if you know literally what that word means, hypocrite, but in all of Greek literature, it's used positively. It's um, simply a word that's like one of those white masks that, you know, you see a Greek actor put on their face. He either has a smile or a frown. You've seen those. And so um, if it, someone was a good actor, you know, you'd say Daniel Day-Lewis is a great hypocrite. It was a positive thing. But Jesus took that and he twisted it and he said, when you um, give to impress other people or yourself, it's like you're wearing a mask. It's not the real you. It's doing those things. It's, it's some imposter. And so he actually kind of coined the term hypocrite in a negative way. So to those friends of yours who say that Christians are all hypocrites, you know, ask them, do you know where that term came from? That actually came from Jesus to describe a, a kind of a, a new critique of humanity, if you will, of the hypocrisy, of the, the two-faced nature of humanity. So he says in verse 2, uh, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet, as do the hypocrites, in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Uh, sound no trumpet. Now, one commentator said, um, quote, We still haven't identified any first-century practices that mirror the blowing of trumpets while giving which I think completely misses the point of Jesus' parable here. It's, a, it's satire, and of course no one blows a trumpet. But he's saying, he's exaggerating. Um, he's doing the thing where he says, take the log out of your own eye um, before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's, that's not literal. That's exaggeration. And to make a point, it's, uh, it's called satire. He's ripping off the mask. He's exaggerating for effect. So imagine you're in church, and the offering plate is coming around, and, uh, and, you know, someone in the back stand, stops the plate, stands up on the pew, and then pulls out underneath one of those big checks at the half times of football games. And it's got like, you know, $10,000 written on there and just says, I'd, I'd like for everyone to know I'm presenting this check to the church. That's what Jesus is saying is going on with these religious leaders who are giving to be seen by men. Of course, they don't literally do that. You know, no one literally actually does that with a big check. But um, that's what's going on in your heart if you're giving to impress other people, is what he's saying. Uh, it's ridiculous attention-getting. So you can impress other people by your giving, but you can also try to impress yourself. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's not literal. Uh, if you've ever tried that, it's psychologically impossible to actually make you know, your left hand, which you can't even think, know what your right hand is not know what your right hand is doing. It's, again, it's kind of, um, 
It's satire. Um, what he's saying is don't pat yourself on the back for your love of social justice. Um, don't pat yourself on the back for thinking that you're a generous person. Giving to, to the poor to help um, to impress other people is bad, but it may be even worse to do it to impress yourself. That may be more dangerous because it's harder to detect that. Um, the, the audience is still human. It's just you now. And so, you know, if you're failing to be generous in your own eyes, then you're going to be chronically guilty. And I bet that some of you are plagued by that. Uh, I know when I became a Christian, I was, and to some extent still am. To the extent that I'm trying to impress myself by my giving, if I'm not doing that, then I'm guilty. But if I am doing that, and most of the time I think I am doing that, I am impressing myself with my generosity. Well, if I am doing it, it's even worse. I'm not chronically guilty. I'm, I'm intolerably self-righteous. And that's what the book, When Helping Hurts, is really about. Uh, he calls it toxic charity. It's the kind of charity where you're coming to it with someone who feels very good about yourself for doing that. And so what does it do to the person you're giving to? It makes them feel the opposite. Uh, your, the very superiority complex you're coming to them with creates, you know, unbeknownst to you, but actually creates in them an inferiority complex, which is kind of the heart of the problem with poverty. Uh, So here's a quote from the book, Brian Fickert book. Uh, People tend to describe poverty as a lack of material things, food, money, clean water, medicine, and housing. But poor people typically talk in terms of shame, inferiority, powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness, depression, social isolation, and voicelessness. Think about that. You're thinking about they don't have enough to eat. They're thinking about the shame. This mismatch between many outsiders' perception of poverty and the perceptions of the poor people themselves can have devastating consequences for poverty alleviation efforts. Short-term mission trips are a case in point. Not always bad. I think they're great when they're done right. But as, as Fickert says in the book, they can have devastating effects. So if you're trying to impress yourself and think of yourself as a generous person, as a person who loves the poor, if you're doing it for that reason, then it's going to hurt people. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing because you're play acting, either for yourself in that case or you're blowing the trumpet for others. That's a critique. Okay, that's the critique part. Now, there's also the part where he says this is what authentic giving looks like, the authentic charity. And what does it boil down to? It it boils down to the little phrase, for your father. And uh, I keep going back to this in the Sermon on the Mount. In some ways, the Sermon on the Mount is just the ethics of being a child of God. Um, That's at the heart of the sermon, is that I am acting as a moral human being, as a moral human agent, because I am a child of God. That's who I am, and that's how I act. It's, it's coming out of your identity as a child of God that you do these things. There's a very stark contrast in verse 1. Um, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, versus then you will have no reward from your father. It's that contrast. And so um, you don't do it to impress others or yourself. You do it because you want to please the father, because that's who you really are if you're a Christian. So throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this keeps coming up. Uh, Earlier on, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When you pray, say, our Father in heaven, that's coming up next. Do not be anxious about your life. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. And then here, 
Your father who sees in secret will reward you. So the Jesus revolution is a revolution of children. It's of human beings coming to realize that they are adopted heirs that now give generously because they are that, because that's their identity. They're heirs and not orphans. Um, Notice the word rewards. I don't know if that throws you off at all. It's a a hard subject. What do you do with Christian rewards? Well, in verse 1, 2, and 4, it's right there. uh, Then you will have no reward from your father. They have received their reward. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. So... um, Some people would say, you know, we shouldn't be thinking about rewards at all when you give. You should never think about rewards. You do it just because it's duty. You do it because it's the right thing to do. And if you think about rewards, it's like trying to get a tax write-off when you give, which people do, and that's, again, that's for the wrong reason. But Jesus obviously thinks there is a right reason to do it for a reward, and it's not a tax break, and it's not your reputation. Um, Notice how he says they have received their reward. And that Greek word received literally means like getting a receipt. When you pay for something and you get the receipt that says paid in full, uh, services have been rendered. And so if you fashion yourself an informed and socially concerned member of society and uh, you dress a certain way to show that, you want people to know this, and you have the right um, shoes, you have socially you know, conscious hats and shirts and glasses, they make these things, it's a market now, and you drink the right coffee, and you shop at the right store, and you have the right bumper stickers, and people say, wow, that Ben Milner, you know, he really is socially conscious. Uh, He's green, he loves the environment, he loves the poor, he's for peace. And as soon as I get people to say that about me, you know, I'm like, yes, that's what I was going for. And at that very moment, Jesus says, it's like a receipt pops out of their mouth that says paid in full. You know, you asked for it, and you got it. You got everything you wanted right there. They're impressed by you. You know, enjoy. And he's saying that's not a big enough reward. That is not enough. Uh, he, he is pointing you to a reward that is much bigger than the fleeting approval of your peers, which is the eternal approval of the Father. This is a staggering, monstrous uh, reward in comparison. C.S. Lewis, uh, he is the writer, by the way, that, um, that in some ways, in addition to my wife, uh, C.S. Lewis and Margie Milner together, you know, double-teamed uh, Ben Milner and, and brought me um, through Mere Christianity to Faith, the book Mere Christianity, which if you haven't read it, is so good. Um, I have reread it many times. He says this, C.S. Lewis, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised to us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. In other words, we accept these puny little rewards as if that's enough. The approval of other people as if that's enough. My own approval as if that's enough. That's fast and cheap. They have received their reward. But these long-lasting and well-crafted rewards that are eternal come from the Father. Verse 4 again, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So again, there's, there's a kind of giving where the receipt pops out of the person's mouth, you get it instantly, and there's a kind where it kind of makes you stand up on your toes and you want, you're, you're looking onto the horizon, it's in the future, he will reward you. I'm looking at something bigger and longer term. In my giving, I'm thinking about something much bigger than other people and the way they see me and myself. I am thinking about this, this kingdom that's coming and I am contributing to the, the kingdom that's on the horizon that's coming in the future. I think an example of this, <clears throat> kind of crazy example, but um, my son's name is Cooper, and he's nine, 
And uh, we have this horrible backyard, like a jungle. And one reason it's like a jungle is because there's so many mosquitoes there that we could never get out there to do anything with it. So we hired Mosquito Authority, which if you have never done that, of course you haven't done that. But um, your parents may have done that. Um, Those of you who are adults, you should do that. Mosquito Authority comes and they kill all the mosquitoes for a whole month. They just die. There's there's no no mosquitoes at all in our backyard anymore. So we went back there and we, um, we tore off a bunch of stuff. And uh, we put in a basketball court, actually. It was incredible. We took down this nasty old um, garage, put in a basketball court. We're um, you know, digging up all these, these, this nasty brush. And I said, Cooper, you know, let's go and work together on the backyard project, which is partly for him because the basketball goal is for him, for Cooper. And, uh, and he says, you know, what, what am I going to get out of this? And I said, okay, well, I'll give you 30 minutes of Wii time, you know, the game. The, he loves Wii, the little the Wii game. So he's, he's going back there and he digs out these big mushrooms. You know, they're like basketball size fungus. And he's putting them in the, the cart and he's contributing to this incredible project with his father. The two of us are doing this thing. But when he finishes with the mushrooms after like 15 minutes, he's like, okay, I'm ready for my Wii time. You know, he's, he's looking for this little tiny, tiny reward that has nothing to do with the real goal. When there's this, this thing that's going on, but this project that's going on, There's this kingdom happening around you, if you're a believer, that you're called to be a part of, and giving is a huge part of that. This resistance to the world where I'm going to be free from my wallet, I'm going to be free from my pocketbook, I'm going to help people, I'm going to help advance the gospel. You can be part of that project with the Father, you know, you and your dad working together on that project, or you can try to impress people. You can have your little we time. You can try to impress yourself. So that's, uh, that's the question. It's a question of motivation. Why are you doing this? Why are you uh, giving? Why do you want to be known as charitable? I think a great movie about motivations, different motivational structures, is Chariots of Fire. I know it's old. I think it was in the 80s, but it still works today. You can still watch it, uh, and, and it's still an absolutely beautiful movie. Uh, it's got the Vangelis music, if you know um, that. So I won't try to sing that right now, but if I did, you would recognize it immediately. So it's a, um, <clears throat> it's a true story based on two runners in the 1924 Olympics. And uh, these two runners have completely different motivations. One guy's name is Eric Little. He's Scottish, Presbyterian. And um, he wants to be a missionary to China. And the other guy's name is Harold Abrams. And he wants to be the fastest man in the world. They have totally different structures of motivation. Now, they both race, and they both win gold medals. And after the race, actually before the race, Abram says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. And then Little says before the run, I believe that God has made me fast, Jenny. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Famous line. And you see there the difference in what's driving them to run. They both won the gold medals, but after Abrams wins his, he and his trainer are in, a little, in like a pub in England, and they're kind of, you know, half-heartedly, reluctantly giving each other a toast with he's got the medal around his neck. But it's, the reward is gone. It's been paid in full. Whereas you see Little, you know, joyfully going off to China. Because it was never just about the medal. It was about the gift of his father. So... Um, I um, have uh, this cousin, his name is Benjamin also, and he's a really cool guy. He's a doctor in Asheville, 
And they actually did a This American Life on him. So if you know NPR, if you're an NPR fan, This American Life, uh, they, did, they did an episode on my cousin, uh, which, which is really incredible. I mean, um, they, the, the episode was about his work as a doctor with a guy in prison, and uh, it was kind of about the way that he, in, in his uh, generosity and his charity, had helped this guy, helped, helped the prison understand the, the mental um, disability this guy had in prison. And so it was about social justice and, and about, you know, Benjamin, little Benjamin, as we call him, because I'm, I'm big Benjamin. And it's about little Benjamin's um, social justice. And I have to say, I haven't listened to it yet. I mean, isn't that terrible? I haven't even listened to it. I'm, I'm too jealous to listen to it, even though he was like a really close friend of mine. And then the other night, um, another uh, really close friend of mine growing up on the, in the neighborhood, his name's Trevor Schoonmaker. And he is the curator of the Nasher Museum. It's an art museum in Duke. I don't know if you know the Nasher Museum. This is the curator. He's a really cool guy with little glasses. And uh, I grew up near him. We were really close friends. We played with Smurfs together. And uh, there was an article. There was a really good write-up in a, in a paper on Trevor and about how he has turned everything around with the Nasher Museum. And now it's popular and it's cool and it's used to promote social justice. And after the This American Life thing with Benjamin... And the article with Trevor, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I'm this dumb, conservative PCA pastor. <laughs> you know, nobody's going to do an interview with me. Nobody's going to do a This American Life on me. I mean, I'm kind of the opposite of that, you know. And I'm, I'm sorry to break that to you if, you're, um, if you thought that uh, being in the PCA was a cool thing. But the culture doesn't regard it that way, unfortunately. Um, so I'm like, you know, it, I, really, I was really upset that night after uh, I read that uh, article about Trevor. But, um, but then, you know, I heard God saying to me, I think he said it to me through other people, but uh, he definitely said it to me. He said, you know, who, who do you think you are? Are you kidding me? I, you're my son. I would, write, I would write an article on you. I mean, I would do a This American Life on you. And I don't, I don't care, you know, what, the, what other people think about your cousin or your good friend growing up. Um, I, I love you, and I'm pleased with you. And if you give um, for any reason other than that, it, it's going to be harmful, and it's going to be hypocritical. It's, the, the giving's got to come from that basic identity that I, essentially who I am is, is a son or a daughter of the king, of the generous king. So um, think about that as you get together, as you... Um, Look at those questions. Um, think about how you can be more generous. But I think even more important than that is why you want to be generous, or why you want to do good. And I do want you to, to, to love the poor. I want you to be advocates for social justice, but for the right reason. That's so important. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this music that's uh, so beautiful. And um, these friends who are leading it, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's it's such a great aid to, um, to just contemplation of the word, and it, uh, it puts it into our hearts. It makes it electric and come to life. So as we sing this last song, Lord, I pray that um, our, our hearts will be lifted up to you, that we would feel uh, the joy of being children of God. In Christ's name, amen.